Today uh, is kind of a teaching lesson uh, in that I want to share with you in a fragmentary way a concept that is intrinsic to all of God's revelation of himself to uh, to our people and to all people. It's something which is uh, uh, which is so necessary, so foundational, yet we don't even think about it. We miss it. But when we start to take it seriously, it uh, can have a profound effect on our lives. And that's what I want to see happen for you today. So I have to remember that I now have the master ability here. Our lesson is called Family Matters. The centrality of familial relational faithfulness for the people of God. Familial relational faithfulness. There's a word in Hebrew for this. Chesed. Would you all say that word? Chesed. Chesed is uh, one of the biggies. It's really one of the huge building blocks of Scripture. It's foundational to how God has revealed himself. I want to talk today with you especially from our Torah reading and also from our New Covenant reading, about the foundational nature of chesed, of relational familial faithfulness in uh, our lives, family matters. I want to begin with a quote from a Christian scholar. His name is Joseph Hellerman. He wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family, Recapturing Jesus' Vision for Authentic Christianity. He's picking up on something That is not simply a New Testament truth. It is there from the first couple of chapters of the Bible. God says to Adam, Adam has a perfect relationship with God. Everything is good. But then God says, it is not good that man should live alone. It's not good that man should be alone. The idea of companionship, of relational faithfulness, is right there from the beginning of the Bible, and it is—it's—it's uh, it's like on every page. It's—and you're going to notice that yourselves after we get done. But here's what Hellerman said: For Jesus, for Paul, for the early church leaders throughout the Roman Empire, the preeminent model that defined the Christian church was the strong group Mediterranean family. Let me talk to you about this term, strong group. It's an anthropological term. A strong strong group culture is a culture which has a very strong sense of us and them, of of group solidarity. I'll give you an example. Japanese culture. Very, very strong group. You can't become a citizen of Japan if you're not Japanese. You can't. The Chinese view themselves as the center of the universe. They're, they're, the, they're, they're the middle kingdom. They're very strong group, very strong sense of insider-outsider. In the Mediterranean world, there was a very strong sense of family. And as Hellerman says here, God was the father of the community. Christians were brothers and sisters united to him through the same older brother. That is typical of the Middle Eastern family, the northern Mediterranean Middle Eastern family, Hellerman teaches this in his book, and he's right. Although he's so enthusiastic about it, I dare he hits you over the head with it. But he's right. 
in the, nor the, the Northern Mediterranean Middle Eastern family, a person's strongest relational bond was with their oldest brother. So that if, for example, a woman was married and her husband died and she somewhere had no place to go, where did she go? To her older brother. In the book of Job, when we read about Job, Job offers sacrifices for his family. By the way, Job is allegedly the oldest, uh, the, kind of the oldest book in the Bible in terms of its worldview. Family, family, family. It opens up with Job offering sacrifices for his, his family in case they've sinned. But then, if you go to the right-hand page, uh, se uh, the, uh, the, second, uh, the end of the first chapter or so, when, uh, when all of Job's children are, are, uh, are catastrophically killed by some kind of tornado, where are all the children gathered? They are gathered in their oldest brother's house. So, communities of Yeshua believers are, we, we are supposed to be brothers and sisters to each other. Brothers and sisters, but not in the dysfunctional sense that most of us have brothers or sisters, but truly brothers and sisters. And why are we brothers and sisters to each other? Because we are related to the same father. And for, in, in the context of Yeshua faith, that relationship is made clearer that we're related to the same father through the same older brother. Who is the older brother? Yeshua. Thank you very much. This is good. For a minute, I thought you weren't going to get it. Okay, let's go on. So I want to plant in your mind a thought that knowing God is a family matter. Being the people of God is a family matter. If God is our Father and our King, we just came out of the High Holy Days, Avinu Malkenu, He's our Father, He's our King. Not so much my Father, my King, our Father, our King. If He's our Father and our King, then what are we to one another? That is a crucial question. And Brothers and sisters, it's a neglected issue, not just here. Throughout the communities of, of Yeshua believers in the United States, maybe in this culture, it's worse than in some places. But if he's our father and our king, what are we to each other? And what does that mean? This is not extra sauce. This is the warp and woof of what it means to be living in God's world. So, we go on. Our Torah reading is a masterpiece of this. I was, I was astonished. If you read this Torah reading, it's 32 verses. Uh, is it 32 or is it, or is it 52? Okay. Uh, 32 verses. The whole thing is about relational Faithfulness. Let's begin. It starts out with God. God is a faithful father. He's not just a faithful God. He's, to be faithful means to be faithful to somebody else. You understand that. Faithfulness means nothing if, if there's no object of your faithfulness. So right from the beginning, uh, this is just part of the air that the Bible breathes. And we read, 
For I will proclaim the name of Adonai. Come, declare the greatness of whose God? Our God. The rock, his way is perfect, for all his ways are just. Justice is a relational term. It has to do with how you deal with other people and other concerns. A trustworthy God who does no wrong, he is righteous and he is straight. He's yeshar, sadiq for yesharhu. He's, he's righteous and he's undeviating. Okay, so we see that God is a relational God. He's a God who is the foundation of pure chesed. We go on. Our Torah reading continues. Very right after that, it talks about us, about Israel. And it says, he is not corrupt. The de defect is in his children, us, a crooked and perverted generation. You foolish people, so lacking in wisdom, is this how you repay Adonai? He is your father who made you his. It was he who formed and prepared you. Relationship, relationship, relationship. And the problem with us is that we have not been faithful in our, in our relationship. And it goes on. God's track record for familial faithfulness. Now, I'm not just picking verses out of, the, out of this text. This is verse after verse after verse. Remember how the old days were? Think of the years through the, all the ages. Ask your father, your earthly father, prior generations, and he will tell you, your leaders too, they will inform you when Elyon, the Most High, gave each nation its heritage, when he divided the human race, he assigned the boundaries of peoples according to Israel's population. But Adonai's share is his own people. Yaakov, his allotted heritage. He found his people in desert country in a howling, wasted wilderness. He protected him. This is faithfulness. This is chesed. This is familial relational faithfulness. This is the kind of father we have. He protected him and cared for him, guarded him like the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up her nest. He hovers over its young. He spreads out and spreads out her wings and takes them and carries them as she flies. Adonai led his people. No alien God was with him. So God has a reputation, Moses says, in this song that he's given to Israel to remember through the ages. God has a reputation for familial faithfulness. Then he talks about our track record. But Yeshurun, that's us, that's a poetic name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, thick, and gross. We grew, we, that, we grew satisfied. Once things were going well, this is very much human nature, when you're in a terrible jam, when your life is going to hell in a handbasket, you call out for God. But when everything is coming up roses, you put God on the later list. And that's what it says here. We grew fat, thick, and gross. We abandoned the God, our maker. We scorned the rock, his, uh, his salvation. They roused him to jealousy with alien gods. This is relational betrayal. The Bible calls it adultery. It's relational. Uh, they provoked him with abominations or sacrificed to demons, non-gods, gods they had never known. This is also adultery. It's relational unfaithfulness. New gods that had come in quickly, come up lately, which your fathers had not feared. You ignored the rock 
who fathered you. You forgot God who gave you birth. You see, you see, I just want to sit there for a minute. I want you to just recognize how it's, it's not just a metaphor. This is home base for understanding human responsibility and relationship to God, human failure, human success, divine goodness. It's all relational, familial relational faithfulness. He has been a faithful father to us. He pulled our cookies out of the fire. He brought us out of Egypt. He, su he sustained us in the wilderness. He forgave us more times than any of us can count. He is faithful and just. Yashar, he's, he's tzaddik for Yashar, righteous and straight. But we ignored, that's so powerful, we ignored the rock who fathered us. We forgot God who gave us birth. And after introducing God and introducing Israel, then going into detail on God's track record, then on Israel's track record, the text comes back and it summarizes uh, this theme again. It says, Adonai saw and was filled with scorn at his sons and his daughters' provocation. Notice the terms, sons and daughters. He said, I will hide my face for them, from them and see what will become of them. For they are a perverse generation, untrustworthy children. There it is again. And by the way, this goes back to uh, our Torah reading a week or so ago, where it's mentioned twice that God hides his face. Here it's again, the third time. Hestripanim, this is a big theme in Jewish theology, that God hides his face. And when God hides his face, uh, uh, what, is the, what does that mean? I'm assuming that there are some of you who are as relationally challenged as I am. And there have been times when there have been people who got angry at you because of something you did. It might have been your spouse. It might have been your friend. But when people are angry with you, they don't make eye contact with you. They deprive you of eye contact. What is that about? It's about a denial of intimacy. It's about withdrawing intimacy because of an issue that exists between you. Very painful. And you can't ignore it. You know, you know Immediately, I'm in trouble. And God says, I'm going to withdraw my, my eyes. I'm going to turn my face away from you. I'm going to deprive you of, of intimacy in order to get you to realize we've got an issue. You understand? That's why, by the way, the, Bened the ironic benediction, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face upon you and be gracious unto you. May he turn his face to you. May he make eye contact with you. May he be intimately connected with you. So this is so powerful, guys. I love standing in God's word with you like this. 
but I hate to leave because it's so rich we could spend the whole day just letting this sink in. But we'll go on. Going back to what we're up to today, being the people of God is a family matter. If God is our Father and our King, then what are we to one another and what does all of this mean? I want to go further and look at that. Our New Covenant passage talks about relational faithfulness in a certain context. You need to recognize that in Rome, shortly before the letter to the Romans was written, the Caesar, Caesar Augustus, I believe it was, had, uh, had expelled all the Jews from, from Rome. And they were gone for, for years. That's why Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila out there in Asia Minor, he meets them, because they, they had lived in Rome, but they, they were part of the exiles. They were, they were refugees. They were, uh, not that we have anything like refugees in our world nowadays, people who have to leave their homes on short notice, but use your imagination. And, uh, and while they were gone, the Jews had been the foundation of the, of the Yeshua community in Rome. When the Jews were cast out by, uh, it was Claudius, when they were cast out, the Gentiles in the congregation assumed control of the congregation, and they also, because they were Romans, who tended to be very arrogant towards anybody who wasn't a blood Roman, they thought, oh, these Jews, God obviously has cast them out. Uh, uh, they're, they're in trouble. We're in charge now. This was supersessionism in, supersessionism in the bud. That was supersessionism. And then, of course, the edict changes and the Jews return. But when they come back, there's tension between the Jews and the Gentiles in the Roman congregation because these attitudes have taken root. And Paul addresses that a lot in the letter. And in chapter 15, he makes a kind of a summary statement. And I'm just giving you a part of it. And he says to them, he's not saying as individuals now. He's saying, you Jews... And you Gentiles welcome each other. He's talking about two blocks of humanity. He says, so welcome each other, just as Messiah has welcomed you into God's glory. God has welcomed these Gentiles into his family. You Jews, you've been welcomed into his family, so Gentiles don't look down on them. They're your, they're your older brothers in that sense. And also, but Jews don't look down on the Gentiles. God has welcomed them. Who are you to reject them? You know, that's what he's saying. Neither Roman Gentiles nor Roman Jews shall look down on the other. This is just one example of how these familial realities work out on the ground. This is not just a theological concept that is meant to be put on, an, on the upper shelf and dusted off once in a while. This is the warp and move of how we live. He goes on, For I say that the Messiah became a servant of the Jewish people, First, he talks about the Jewish familial communal reality. And he says this, the Messiah became a servant of the Jewish people in order to show God's truthfulness by making good his promises to the patriarchs. So the Jewish people were the recipients of God's chesed, of his familial relational faithfulness 
this is great stuff. He promised their ancestor he would take care of their kids, and he did. So the Jews are recipients of God's chesed. Man, that's where it's at. And in order to show his mercy by causing the Gentiles to glorify God. So God is the God not of the Jews only. He's the God of the Gentiles also. And the Gentiles are not second-class citizens. He's telling the Jews. And he's telling the Gentiles, watch out what you say about the Jews. He says in the same chapter 11, they're the natural branches. You know, even when they've broken off in unbelief, they're still natural branches. You Gentiles, you're wild branches. Even when you're grafted into the olive tree, you're still wild branches. So don't forget who they are, and don't forget who you are. This is all relationship. This is all familial, relational faithfulness. This is chesed. And you'll see in a moment where I'm going with this. Three things. What then should we be doing? Number one, Messianic Jews and Gentiles among us must never look down on the church. Instead, we must take care of them like family. I want you to know, I've met too many people in the Messianic community who are condescending to the church, and condescending is a polite term for it. They tend to be arrogant. They're extremely naive. Uh, But I want you to know, as long as I have breath, and as long as I stand before people like you, I want you to say, that stuff don't go. Do not look down on the church. Do not think, oh, you'll hear this kind of junk. Oh, the church, they're apostate because they don't celebrate the feasts. The feasts weren't given to the church. Uh, Oh, they don't keep the seventh-day Sabbath. The seventh-day Sabbath, according to Exodus 31, is God's gift to Israel. But people who are theologically not only naive, but there's a tremendous amount of bad instruction out there from what's called the Hebrew Roots Movement, where people are made to feel like they're elite because they have the inside track on all this stuff. But it's 94% garbage. So I'm telling you, number one, Messianic Jews and Gentiles among us must never look down on the church. Not even look down on the Roman Catholic Church, please. The Roman Catholic Church is very uh, imperfect, but it's very diverse. And I'll I'll tell you something from my PhD work. Since 1964, Vatican II, the, the Roman Catholic Church promulgated a document called Nostra Aetate. In the fourth paragraph of that, revolutionized their attitude towards the Jews. And I want you to know from deep research that I did in my most recent book, this is deep research, the Roman Catholic Church made more progress in the last, in in, in our lifetime, more progress than the Protestant churches have. The Protestant churches are way behind the Catholic Church in terms of having respect for the Jewish people. We should respect them. Are they perfect? No, they're not. I know people, I met somebody in the Jewish missions community who thinks that Mother Teresa is not a Christian. Why? Because she feels that Mother Teresa is wrong about the Virgin Mary. Well, you're wrong about a lot of things. You're wrong, and I'm wrong about a lot of things, but we're so 
we, we see through a glass darkly. And therefore, we don't even know what we're wrong about. But Mother Teresa is a child of God, not because of what she thinks about the Virgin Mary, but because of what she thinks of Jesus Christ. And I want, you, I want to invite you to read her book. She wrote a book called Come Be My Light. She didn't intend to write a book. It was, it's made up of letters she sent to her spiritual director. Letters she sent seeking spiritual counsel. And she wanted all these letters destroyed, but they didn't destroy them. They made a book out of some of them. And when you read that book, after about maybe 20 minutes, you have to drop it from your hands. It's so hot with holiness. Her love for Yeshua was so overwhelming that you find yourself ashamed. So be careful who you look down on, because God is looking at you. So let's cut that stuff, okay? I was going to say crap, but I'm not allowed to say that. That's why I didn't say it. Number two, Messianic Jews and Gentiles among us must never look down on the Jewish people. Instead, we must take care of them like family. There are people in the Messianic community who treat the religion of the rabbis like it's a religious mafia, who treat Judaism like it's something we have to protect ourselves from. That kind of stuff don't go, doesn't go either. Uh, we, we have no room for pride, okay? If I've upset any of you, please call, call Steve Goldsmith. He's up every night, all night, praying for us. Any time after midnight is good. Number three, in all matters, we must remember that God is our Father, and they will be related to him and to each other through Yeshua, our older brother in the family of God. We are family. Let's act like it. That touches everything that has to do with congregational life. We are family. But in varying degrees, we are dysfunctional family. We cannot escape the fact that we are family. The question is, what kind of a family are we? Shabbat Shalom.